Thank you, worship team, and good morning. I'm Pastor Tom, one of the staff pastors here at New Hope Church. We're so glad, second service, to have you all with us this morning, worshiping and coming to grow and learn and go deeper. So back in the early days of New Hope Church, one of the missions endeavors we got involved in was traveling down to Mexico, and we did various kinds of things. We helped start a church down there actually helped put up a church building before we even had our church building and they're exciting days and so when you're down in Mexico you know all sorts of people want to sell you things and so they came up on a couple of things that I bought one was this carving of an eagle that guy was selling out on the street and it kind of reminded me of Isaiah 40 31 which says even you stumble and fall but those who hope in the Lord will renew their strength, they'll soar on wings like eagles. And so it was just a reminder to keep soaring. And so I bought this. Now they told me they were carved. They might have been made in a factory over in Reynosa or something. But anyway, uh, they're still good reminders of what God did down there. And then I think it was a different trip. I decided to pick up another carving. So this one's a pig. And um, so... In my mind, I thought, soaring, but also stay humble. And I don't know if pigs are actually humble, but it's, it's a humble kind of a creature. So this is remind me to stay humble. So I keep those in my office at church, reminding me to soar, reminding me to stay humble. And I thought it was a good and fitting kind of symbolism for the start of this message. Because as we think about the Apostle Paul, He's somebody who was trained as a rabbi, fairly well known, and then as he responded to God, God humbled him and used him in his humility, used all of his gifts, and yet he was also very humbled, and he walked as a humbled man and followed Jesus as a humble man. And as we arrive in the book of Philippians, we find Paul walking with God in humility. If you have a Bible, open up to the book of Philippians, chapter 2. You can also use your phone or your electronic device. Now, I like to use Bible Hub, but some people like to use version, and there's lots of places you can go to find the Bible electronically. In fact, I think I probably use electronic version of the Bible these days even more often than I use a paper copy. Like we have a men's Bible study on Fridays, and I always bring my phone, and that's how I use my Bible. And so either way is good. I'll have a few Bible verses up on the PowerPoint, but you'll get a little more about it if you follow in your own Bible. So Philippians chapter 2 and we're reminded, Pastor Ryan has reminded us that the Apostle Paul was imprisoned. That he was chained there to Roman guards. And yet, in spite of that very difficult kind of situation, God was using him. The Apostle Paul says that the gospel, the good news of Jesus, had become known throughout the whole Roman guard. That Think about this. The Apostle Paul is connected there and he's talking with them. And he's asking them questions and dialoguing with them and preaching to them, sharing who Jesus is and what Jesus has accomplished. And some began to believe. And so the gospel began to spread. And then as well, the book of Philippians is written from that prison. And so in spite of difficult circumstances, humbling 
situation, God used him. That's what he does in our lives as well. We don't always know what kind of situation we're going to be in. We don't know where life's journey is going to take us. But in the midst of those difficult situations, as we allow God to work in our lives, in those humbling situations, not because of our own bright minds, not because of our own getting our act together, not because of our own power, not because of our own wealth, it's in responding to God. Right where you're at, whatever your situation this morning, God can and will use you. The theme of this particular message and this particular passage is we're called to humbly serve Jesus for your joy and for God's glory. Whatever the situation we find ourselves in. Now we've been talking about the fact that joy is found in surprising places. And this book of Philippians uses the word joy numerous times. In every chapter, it's found one time here in verses 1 through 11. And so we find that as we respond to God, there's genuine joy. Joy is different than happiness, right? Happiness is something that is quick and is pleasure-based. Happiness might happen if you go over to the state fair and you ride on a little roller coaster and you'll have a thrill. That's happiness. But joy is something deeper. Joy is something within us that comes out of relationship with Jesus and out of relationship with others who know us and we know them. The way it's described in Philippians 2.1 is that we're united with Christ. Another way of saying that is we have a relationship with Christ. And verse 1 begins, if you have any encouragement from being united with Christ. And the impact is that you do. If you know Christ, if you trusted in Jesus, you do have a relationship with Him. To be united with Christ, just, not, just another way of saying you're saved. You've trusted in Jesus for your salvation. You don't have to earn it. You don't have to go to church so many times. You don't have to do anything because Jesus has done what needs to be done when he died on the cross for your sins, when he rose from the dead. And his invitation to you and me, he says, come to me in Matthew eleven twenty-eight. 28. Come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I'll give you rest. Do you come weary? Do you come burdened? He says, come. And that promise holds for tomorrow, and the next day, and the next day, and the next day. Every day you get up, even if you don't feel like it, he says, come. All you who are weary and burdened, and I'll give you rest. A lot of things that are not restful in this world. But Jesus says, come to me and I'll give you rest. He says, take my yoke upon you. What's a yoke? A yoke is kind of like a harness where you have two animals. Generally in that day, oxen, and they carve this wooden yoke and put it over the two oxen and they pulled some kind of agricultural equipment or a cart. And Jesus says, join him in that harness. Join him in that yoke. For his burden is light. He does the pulling. Many of us, you know that, don't you? When you 
join in connection with Jesus. He does the pulling. And we come along. That's the invitation he gives to us. That's what it means to be connected, to be in relationship with him. This relationship, it says, brings a few things. If you continue on in Philippians 2.1, it says it brings comfort from God's love. God so loved the world. God so loved you that he went to the cross for you, for your sins, for my sins, for all who will trust in him. We have comfort from that, a love that lasts. We have fellowship with the Spirit, it says. When you know Jesus, we have fellowship with Christ. We could say we have fellowship with God the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit. We can come. He invites us to come. And then it ends in tenderness and compassion for others. Jesus has tenderness and compassion for you. It says that Jesus came with great compassion throughout the Gospels. He comes to us in great compassion, great feeling. He knows the experiences that we go through. And he has compassion for you. And so, as he has compassion for us, then the invitation is to respond with tenderness and compassion for others. Life hits us hard sometimes. And sometimes we can react in bitterness and our hearts can become hard. And we begin to blame God or other people. And God just continues to come to us with tenderness and compassion. And he says to you and me, he says, I'm the source of life. I'm the source of rest. I'm the source of compassion. And as we respond to him, it takes humility for us to say, mm, I can't get my act together. I can't do this on my own. Jesus, I need your help. One way to put it is what's stated in verses 3 and 4, where it's stated pretty directly. And it says there, do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit, but in humility consider others better than yourselves. Each of you should look not only to your own interests, but also to the interests of others. So verse 3 tells us what not to do. To do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. And then it continues on and tells us what to do. But consider others better than yourselves. As Jesus connects with us, as Jesus gives his life to us, then we turn that around and we share his life with others as he works in and through us. Somebody asked a famous symphony conductor what the most difficult instrument in the band, and he said, second violin. He said, I can get all sorts of people who want to play first violin. But he said, we need people to play second violin. And if I don't have a second violin, he said, we don't have harmony. Now, there's times we're called to play first violin. But as we respond in humility, as we respond to Jesus and look out for the interests of others, it's like playing second violin, and then there's harmony that comes. In our marriages, in business, in church, in friendships. And it doesn't mean we're a doormat. 
We can still state what we believe, what we know. There can still be respect. Even when we're playing second violin or second fiddle. Let's go on. Then it says, no more selfish ambition or vain conceit. That word vain conceit is a word that we might describe it as being full of ourselves. We're invited to be full of the Spirit. And what that means is that we're emptied of self and we're full of the Spirit. And then God brings humility in our lives. Maybe you heard about the guy who said, I'm humble and proud of it. And humility is, you know, it's, it's a hard balance to have. I think an old, old Mac Davis uh, song way back. He said, uh, you know, Lord, it's hard to be humble when you're perfect in every way. And the reason why that's funny is because we all know we're not at all perfect. But on the other hand, it's hard for us to recognize those self-oriented kinds of tendencies within us at times and really measure our humility. It's tough. I'll have some questions a little bit later to help us with that. My point is that the Apostle Paul found himself there in jail, what we describe as a pretty humbling kind of situation, and yet even in that situation, he found joy, and he found a way to serve Jesus. And so my question is, what humbling situation do you find yourself in? And recognizing the battle that it is? How are you finding joy and a way to serve in the midst of that situation? Now another result of the relationship we have with Jesus is stated in verse 2. It says there that we have unity when we have a relationship of unity with Jesus, when we are connected with Him, we have a relationship of unity with one another. He says, make my joy. There's that word joy. Make my joy complete by being like-minded, having the same love, being one in spirit and in purpose. When we're in unity, there's joy. When we're in unity, there's the same purpose, the same love, the same spirit and purpose. Being like-minded doesn't mean that we exactly think the same thoughts, but it does mean that we have like convictions and like mission. For example, we have a statement of our beliefs and some basic beliefs that we have in common as believers, as followers of Jesus. We have a like mission to help others to find and follow Jesus. We have like values. We love, we grow, we go. And we share those in common, together. We're like-minded in those things. It's a part of what brings joy in our lives as a church. Part of what brings joy in our lives as we journey with others who have those same like-minded beliefs and convictions. We have a similar kind of a love, a love that is like the love of Jesus. Now, we know that the Philippians, we will, we will hit Philippians chapter 4 in a few weeks, but we know that there were some in that church who were struggling with this. In chapter 4, 
the Apostle Paul, he's pretty direct. He says uh, there are two women who are apparently arguing with one another. And he says very directly in chapter 4, he says, I want Yodia and Sintish to agree with one another. And so all throughout history, Yodia and Sintish, we don't know who they are, other than that they were arguing with one another. Nothing else is said about them. Now, presumably, he says in that chapter that they were also workers in the gospel, but how would you like to be remembered for the two women who argued? And so the Apostle Paul says, instead of that, let's be about what God wants to be about in unity. Now, he says we're one in spirit and in purpose. Eugene Peterson, who wrote the message paraphrase, he translated, be deep-spirited friends. And, and I like that because it's the word that is used here, it's kind of a cool word, sumsakoi, and it means um, to be same-souled. You know, to be similar in soul. To be together at the deepest part of our lives. One in spirit and in purpose. Now my favorite season is coming up. Football season. And so, just to use a little illustration from football. When you have a football team, you have 11 players on the field at the same time. And so if you're on offense, you've got your quarterback, your running back. If you're at Iowa, you've got a fullback. You've got receivers, guards, tackle centers. And they're out there all working together if things are going well. Remember the first time I ended up in high school in the varsity huddle and uh, these guys are all arguing, and I thought, this is not how it's supposed to be. And so, it's supposed to be everybody working together, all achieving a common kind of goal. And so, when the quarterback throws the ball, hits the receiver, he scores a touchdown, everybody's supposed to celebrate together. I don't know if you caught, you know, Cleveland Browns have been awful for many years. And some people think they're kind of coming on. And so the other day, there was this guy who caught the ball, punted, balls punted. He caught the ball, went like 80 yards for a touchdown. And the whole team dogpiled on this guy. And the reason why was because he'd been homeless up until training camp. And apparently he was able to talk because he was real fast he was able to talk the Cleveland Browns into giving him his chance and the guys that were commenting on the game said yeah everybody I can't even remember the guy's name but they said everybody on the team is like really excited for this guy so they all dogpile on him after this preseason and so that's my point is that when God's doing things we're all working together we dogpile everybody on together all together. That's kind of the idea that's given here when we're talking about being one in spirit and in purpose to a church, a family, a marriage, a business that's going well. Everybody working together as one. Now there's a little shift in verse 5 of this passage. Now we begin to continue to look. Actually this passage kind of has some of these applications up front and then in verses 5 through 11, 6 through 11, it gives us the motivation. What's the motivation? Who's the example? Jesus, of course. 
It says your attitude should be the same as that of Jesus, who being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, but made himself nothing, taking the very nature of a servant. And being found as a servant, he humbled himself, became obedient to death, even death on a cross. There's some commentators who think this section from about verses 6 to 11 was an ancient hymn. And there is kind of a rhythm, kind of a poetic, kind of a nature to this, a tone to this section. And so I think it could have been an ancient hymn. It's a beautiful celebration of what Jesus has done. What we'll be celebrating just a little while in communion, in going to the cross and in his resurrection. And so it says there that Jesus humbled himself. He descended to earth. He gave up something. Did he give up his godness, his deity? No. What did he give up? He gave up his glory. Over in John chapter 17, 5, he, in, as he's praying, he says to God the Father, he says, Give me the glory that I had before the world began. And so Jesus shed his glory, didn't come as a potentate, didn't come as a powerful, overwhelming kind of a king who just ruled with an iron fist. Came humbly, came simply, came as a servant. He humbled himself and became obedient to death. Even death on a cross. Humility is a hard thing, like I said earlier. It's a hard thing to kind of get a grasp on. So here's a little example, one of a thousand examples I could give. One time when I was an associate pastor out in Ohio, we were involved in a discussion about a big dirt pile that was at the end of the building, and that church building is a big church, about three times, the campus is about three times as big as ours, and so this dirt pile was just sitting there, and they're all talking about how are we going to get this dirt pile moved, it's kind of ugly down there, and so over time, it's a matter of like two or three weeks, started to notice the dirt pile is going down. What's going on here? Nobody knew what was going on. And so one day, about 5 o'clock, as I was finishing up, I walked down that direction, and I saw Fred, and he's taking a shovel, putting the wheelbarrow, moving the dirt to where it needed to go. I said, Fred, what are you doing? And he said, the job needed doing. And so he said, after, he said, after I get off work every day, I just come down, I move a little dirt. He said, but don't tell anybody. Okay. Well, now I'm telling people. But uh, that was a long time ago. To me, as Kathleen and I have talked about different people who have impacted us in various ways, and just example, and I could give others, like I say, even here and last week, and Jake's just bragging on all of you serving in various kinds of ways, and we try to do that. And uh, we know many of you serve really well and we appreciate that, and God uh, is glorified because you do that. So 
anyway, Fred has just helped me to think about humility and about serving down through the years, just doing things behind the scenes because that's what God wanted him to do. It's what God wants us to do. And Jesus, it says, is our example. For Jesus is all the way to the cross. The cross. A cruel instrument of death that... Roman author Cicero said, he said, far be it from any Roman citizen to even name the cross. He said, from the thoughts, the eyes, the ears of Roman citizens. He said, don't even talk about the cross because it was so cruel. And yet Jesus died that criminal death on the cross with thieves on the other side. No flags, no speeches, no eulogies. He went to that cross. This is what communion represents. What it symbolizes for us. The love he has for you. To go to that cross. The passage continues as we begin to wrap up. And it says, Therefore God highly exalted him to the place. To the highest place. And gave him the name that is above every name. That the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. And the exhortation is to serve Jesus to the glory of God. Now, in the U.S., most everybody has heard of Jesus. When I go to places like India, there are lots of people that don't even know who Jesus is. But in the United States, most people know the name of Jesus and have an opinion about who he is, right? So there are people that think, well, Jesus was some kind of magician who came and did tricks. Some people think he was kind of this wise guy who had these witty sayings that he threw out. Some people think he was a revolutionary renegade who uttered all kinds of revolutionary phrases. Some people think he was a con artist. Some people think he was a fabrication of the early church. But the Bible says that he is the Messiah, the King of Kings, Lord of Lords, the Son of God. And we each have a decision to make. Who is Jesus? What does he accomplish for you? Well, this section says that he is the Savior. That's what the word Jesus means, you know. Old Testament Joshua, New Testament Jesus, same name. And, in fact, Joseph was told, Jesus' human father was told, he says, give him the name Jesus because he will save his people from their sins. That's what the name Jesus means. He saves. And then he's called the Christ. Confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. Christ is not his last name. You know that, right? And it's not a swear word. It's a title. We could say Jesus the Christ. Christ is the same as Messiah, the anointed one. It's a title like saying somebody is the president of Kiwanis or something. He is much more than the president of Kiwanis. He is the Christ the Messiah, the promised Messiah. Then it says he's Lord, he's our Lord. In Roman times, in the first century, 
citizens and non-citizens who were conquered, the conquered peoples, were told that they had to say, Caesar is Lord. And generally, the Romans would allow different conquered peoples to do any kind of religious kinds of activities they wanted to do. They could have any rituals they wanted to have. They could have any kinds of worship services that they wanted to have, whatever gods that they worshipped, as long as they said, Caesar is Lord. Now, the Christians, it was okay that they said, Jesus is God come in the flesh. No problem. It was even okay that they had worship services to honor Jesus as God, as Savior. But when they said, Jesus is Lord, that was a problem. Because the Romans said, no, Caesar is Lord. Rome rules. And to say Jesus is Lord was competition. And this is why Christians were fed to the lions. Why some were crucified in the same manner as Jesus. Why some were stoned to death. Why many were persecuted. There's a cost. When we say that Jesus is Lord, Jesus is the one I follow, Jesus is the one I respond to, it says that every tongue will confess that Jesus is Lord. Now that doesn't mean that every person will be in heaven, every person will be saved. But it does mean that there's a day coming when Every person who has ever lived will admit, finally admit, whether freely or because they have to finally admit it, every person will admit that Jesus is the one who is Lord, who is ruler of the universe. There's a day coming, and it says that even every angel in heaven, every demon in hell, will one day proclaim that Jesus is Lord, he has the right to reign. He's the one who calls you to respond to him, to follow him. This is what we celebrate here in communion today. That Jesus is the rightful ruler. He's your savior. Now as you respond to Jesus, as you humbly respond to him, I have some questions for you that come out of this message. Some questions designed to help you meditate a little bit on this passage. And as we enter into communion time, you can be thinking about these. Now you can ask yourself, and you should ask yourself these questions, but sometimes it's hard to ask ourselves, so maybe if you're married, a spouse can help you answer these questions. Maybe a parent or a child can help you to ask these questions. Maybe a friend can help you to ask these questions. You know, I know that many of us are doers and we grow through doing and that's certainly a part of the Christian life and part of Christian growth. But sometimes we need some time just to slow down and ask ourselves some hard questions. And so these are hard questions, meditation, reflection kinds of questions. One is, do you like arguing too much? We know we're struggling with our pride if we have to have our own way. If we need to argue our way, 
And our way only is the right way. Do you find yourselves criticizing others easily? Those are one of the things we can look at in ourselves that tells us, yeah, I'm focused on self, comparing myself with others. Do you have to always have the last word? Again, it goes back to that argumentation kind of mentality. I'm going to shut things down. I'm going to have the last word. How much time do you spend talking about yourself versus asking others questions? We're other-centered when we ask others, how are you doing? When we begin to find out about people and their story and what's going on. You think of yourself as self-made or God-made? And again, this is a very internal kind of question. Do you think, yeah, I know I got it together. It's the things I thought, things I did, things I accomplished. It was my thinking, my doing, my energy. That's how we accomplished what we accomplished. Or do you know, it's God who brought me where I am. First of all, certainly it's God who saved me, but it's God who put me in this place in life, gave me the gifts I have, gave me the abilities I have. Are you driven by self-ambition to make sure you win and others lose? And then a couple of uh, more positive kinds of questions. Are you looking toward others' needs and interests? And then finally, are you willing to serve in practical ways, whether it's your family, whether it's here at New Hope Church, whether it's in the community? Just some questions to help us to just ask ourselves, where am I at in growing and learning and humbly serving Jesus that brings joy to us and glory to God? Reflect on these things as we come for communion. We have communion because it is in a it's a reflection of what we're just talking about. We've just been talking about when it says that if we're united with Christ, we have these things. We have a relationship with Jesus. We have a relationship with one another. And communion, that word communion, means relationship. It means to commune, to fellowship, to be in relationship. This is exactly what we celebrate. This passage describes the reality that communion represents. And so we invite you to come. If you know Jesus Christ as your Savior, we have what we call open communion. That means you don't have to be a member of the church. But if you know Jesus as Savior, we invite you to come. And the way we 